back to Peace in Their Time, Episode 28, The Ruhr Crisis, Part 1. Going into 1922, Germany was in an increasingly bad way. Their internal tensions were still simmering even after the near-Civil War conditions had passed, and the government struggled to establish any legitimacy. It had trouble raising funds for normal operations, and that was before taking into account the burden of reparations and it continued to find itself incredibly isolated internationally as well. The French were understandable enemies, but the British and Americans did not materialize as the friends many politicians had hoped for. In April 1922, the British Prime Minister at the time, Lloyd George, organized an international conference in the Italian seaport of Genoa. The aim was to establish an economic understanding in Europe and to rehabilitate Germany and the Russians which uh, this conference was notable because the Soviets were actually invited to this one. But the conference went nowhere. The French leader, Briand, who was open to a deal with the Germans to decrease reparations in exchange for security guarantees, uh, was deposed and replaced by the far more bellicose Poincaré, who I hope you remember from the French episodes, as he was one of the few worth remembering. The French and Germans could not come to any sort of agreement, and the conference eventually came to nothing. The Germans and Russians, however, did make a little side conference of their own at the town of Rapallo. The resulting Treaty of Rapallo normalized relations between Germany and Bolshevik Russia. You might think this sudden, friendly gesture between the two to be odd. After all, Germany had just gotten done putting down every Marxist-affiliated movement they could, and the Russians had supported those movements. But the political calculus was the same for both. Neither had friends in the world and figured they could use each other. Additionally, the Germans thought that the agreement would give them leverage over the Entente. If they didn't make a deal with Germany, well then, the Russians would be an option. The Entente were not impressed, though. In fact, they were rather angry at the temerity of the Germans and abandoned trying to make arrangements with them. One of the many underlying threads in this podcast is that Germany was not terribly good at diplomacy. The agreement with the Russians wasn't all that valuable. The Bolsheviks were still in a fragile position and couldn't be counted upon to form any mutual power block. Plus, they were still communists, so that really wasn't a viable option anyway. One thing it did do was open the door to under-the-table military cooperation. General Siecht saw the Russians as a useful partner in providing his nascent Reichswehr with a field for training and for German manufacturers, a place to develop and test forbidden weapons well away from the prying eyes of the Entente. This relationship would never be a massive enterprise, but again, it's a clear example of how the Germans never attempted to abide by their peace treaty well before the Nazis made their rise. Anyway. So by mid-1922, Germany was politically and economically isolated, and this was the moment where the infamous hyperinflation really came into the picture. If there's anything about Weimar Germany that you may have learned from school or the History Channel, it's the inflation crisis. Basically, thanks to a lack of will to raise taxes and the drain of reparations payments, as well as just basic expenses, the government resorted to printing money to pay its bills. Given that this sudden influx of money into the economy wasn't backed by anything new, 
it meant the value of the German mark was reduced in value. And the more paper currency that was issued, the less attractive a prospect the nation became to foreign lenders. By the end of 1922, the mark was 342 times less valuable compared to the pre-war level. This, in contrast to 1921, when it was a little over 19 times less valuable. Which, also not great, but at least that was sustainable. Now the money situation was getting out of control. In June 1922, the exchange rate for a mark to a dollar was 300 to 1. At the end of the year, it was 8,000 to 1. By August 1922, the reparations payments were being made with just goods in kind, as the money on hand was worthless. But this was also untenable, as the government had to purchase those goods domestically, printing more money to do so. In November 1922, Joseph Wirth resigned and Wilhelm Kuno became the chancellor. He promised to stabilize the mark and make a deal with the French by asking for a two-year suspension of payments while he sorted things out domestically, and he failed at both almost immediately. As you may recall, French Prime Minister Poincaré was a really belligerent guy vis-à-vis the Germans, who wasn't in any mood for negotiation after all the excuses and machinations the Germans had thrown in his country's way. Matters finally came to a head in December 1922, when Kuno gave up the ghost and announced that the reparations payments could no longer be met. Poincaré responded on January 11, 1923, with French troops invading the Ruhr. I know I already covered this crisis back in the French episodes, and while the details of it certainly haven't changed since then, I didn't really go over the German perspective in any great detail. And this is one of the key moments in Weimar Germany's unhappy existence. The French intentions with the invasion was to force the Germans back into compliance with their obligations. But they did not reckon with the contempt in which the common citizenry of Germany held those obligations. The entire event was a public humiliation, and the initial response was for most of Germany to rally around the government. Every party aside from the KPD joined in a unity block to resist the invaders. Kuno, backed by President Ebert, declared a policy of non-resistance in the Ruhr. Workers would not go to work, public servants would not cooperate, and the whole valley would come to a screeching halt. To support this, Kuno would devote monetary aid to provide the citizens of the Ruhr with relief during the times to come. You might detect a problem with this strategy as the resulting money printing would actually accelerate now that paying for a regional strike was being added to the list of public expenses, while the shutting down of the Ruhr industrial area meant one of the biggest components of the economy was effectively being turned off. The strike was effective in the short term, though. Railways in the Ruhr ground to a halt, and the protest spread westward into the Rhineland area that had already been under occupation for the past four years. Interestingly enough, the mine owners were still allowed to sell the French coal if they paid normally for it and didn't just take it as part of the reparations. Mines like the ones owned by Stennis and Krupp operated normally, either selling the coal to the French or stockpiling it for later, when normality was restored. Kuno eventually asked them to stop, but he didn't have a great way to enforce that request, so they quietly kept selling to the French. 
Steinus would lambast any cooperation with the French in the many newspapers he owned, but would stay in touch with them for business purposes throughout the crisis. Gustav Krupp was actually arrested for his dealings with the French, but allowed to run his business from a cell before being transferred to house arrest. Militarily, General Seacht knew the army couldn't take the French on, but he did start reactivating some of the old Free Corps. Weapons had been stashed in hidden depots, and now it looked like some of the old gang needed to get back together in case the French expanded their invasion plans outside the Ruhr. Some of these groups were even sent into the Rhineland and Ruhr on small sabotage missions to disrupt the occupation. These efforts didn't do much to hinder the French occupation, but did set the French soldiers on edge. One notable example of French retaliation to this subversive activity was on March 31st, when a contingent of troops stormed into a Krupp factory and started shooting up the workers, leaving 13 dead and 41 wounded. Instances like these only hardened German resolve, though, to resist the French and help the crisis drag on. National unity did not solve the inflation crisis, though. The government kept printing money to be sent out to the Ruhr to keep the resistance going, which in turn sunk the whole of the nation further into its financial emergency. That the Ruhr was the main economic engine of the nation meant the whole economy started breaking apart, forcing the government into a spiral of printing ever larger denominated bills in an attempt to meet the deficits. An attempt was made in April 1923 to stabilize the currency and raise new taxes to get things under control, but the industrialists, led by Steinus, responded by selling marks abroad in mass, creating a massive capital flight and forcing the government to print more in order to keep money in the actual economy, which just drove inflation farther. This created a standoff between the government and the industrialists. In June, Steinus approached Kuno with an offer. He would raise a loan backed by gold marks to help stabilize the economy. In return, the government would switch the 8-hour workday to 10 hours for the next 15 years. Wages would not be protected by the government any longer. The railways would be denationalized. And his block of interests would be in charge of writing legislation concerning the workplace moving forward. He was straight up asking the government to surrender even the modest rights that the workers had won post-1918. Kuno could not bring himself to make that bargain, as it really would have been political suicide, and so the industrialist bloc stood aside as the inflation turned to the hyperinflation of legend. Prices fluctuated, first by the week, then the day, then by the hour. The price of coal changed four times in a single day. On May 1st, it took 31,700 marks to match dollar. In July, it was 160,400, and in August, it was 1,103,000. People had to take wheelbarrows just to collect their pay. That's not a joke. People lined up with wheelbarrows just to collect their wages. The problem had gotten that cartoonish. Once paid, the workers then had to rush out to the store in order to spend all the money. If they didn't, the money would be worth even less in a matter of hours, and they wouldn't be able to purchase as much. Maybe not anything at all. Mark notes worth hundreds of millions, and before too long, tens of billions started appearing. If you went to a restaurant, it was likely that the price of the meal you ordered would have changed by the time you finished it. 
Describing the cost of basic goods in this, time, in this period is almost pointless. They fluctuated so quickly and it spiraled out of control so badly that the numbers were meaningless. There were some winners in the situation, though. Uh, foremost among them were the industrialists and, and some home buyers. The industrialists could secure a loan, buy wholly new equipment for their factories, and when it came time to actually start making payments, the loan itself was just pocket change. The same principle applied to home buyers. Hugo Steinus and his cohorts made another killing in the crisis, modernizing many of their facilities while the getting was good. Of course, this meant the banking system was wrecked pretty thoroughly, and people who held a tiding savings before the crisis were totally wiped out. This is to say that it was the middle class who really ate it under these circumstances. The entire concept of money turned into an absurd joke. Not surprisingly, this led to a good deal of frustration with the government. Yeah, the French were detested, but Kuno's government also became an object of scorn the longer the crisis went on. And we already know, the French weren't inclined to go anywhere just yet. The disaster created an opening for both the far left and far right. For the KPD, this was an opportunity to recover from the disasters of 1921. They inserted themselves as an alternative to bourgeois politics that had gotten everyone into this mess. Being a communist party, they could oppose both the Kuno and Poincar governments simultaneously. The inflation had wrecked the social safety net as the payouts became worthless from things like unemployment and pensions. And the government being as tight as they were with the industrialists eroded the faith that it was acting in the national interest during this time. The workers were getting desperate as the prospect of food shortages and worsening working conditions appeared very likely. In April, workers in the Ruhr and in central Germany started organizing into proletarian hundreds a term that basically meant bands of workers who joined together for collective defense. Keep in mind that the Ruhr crisis had inflamed far-right violence to an extreme degree, and given the events of the past several years, leftist-leading workers knew full well that they could be made targets at any time. Their numbers grew, and on May Day, massive street marches were held. Hundreds of thousands marched in Berlin, tens of thousands elsewhere. There were even 70,000 marchers in Munich, deep in the lion's den of far-right activity. After this display, the government attempted to ban these groups, with mixed results. They continued in the Rhineland and the Ruhr, where authorities couldn't effectively get to them, as well as in areas like Saxony and Thuringia, where local politics were dominated by the left. Elsewhere, they continued to build up their strength as underground movements. By the summer, the economic collapse was resulting in strikes all over the country. The industrialists' double dealings with the French at this point were also public knowledge, so anti-business sentiment was on the rise, and the Kuno government took the step of asking the French to put down KPD-affiliated worker movements in the areas they occupied, betrayals that only further drove people to the Red Banner. The crisis also radicalized the rank and file of the SPD, especially as the SPD and the USPD had merged back together in September 1922, which injected a block of more leftist-leaning members back into the party. Given the situation, there was pressure within the SPD to join with the communists and form a leftist front that hadn't been seen in years. The KPD was receptive to making an offer, but 
apprehensive about the SPD actually accepting it. The SPD had betrayed the communists, and many of their own principles, at every turn in the past four years. And the KPD really didn't want to go through all that again. Uh, then again, if they made the offer and the SPD refused, then it would hand the communists the moral victory as the ones who had made the bigger man gesture. In the winter and spring of 1923, there was a fierce debate among the KPD of what was the best option. For the time being, armed action was out of the question. The hundreds were certainly large bodies of workers, but the leadership was still stung from the March 1921 fiasco and wanted to move cautiously. Hence the debate about parliamentarian positioning while the nation was falling apart around them. Indeed, the KPD leadership was slow in recognizing the potential of the strikes breaking out during the summer months. But they adapted soon enough, and in August organized a strike right at the heart of the inflation that was causing so much misery. On August 9, 1923, the Union of the Workers operating the nation's printing presses went on strike. The communists even managed to convince the unions that the workers operating the currency printing presses to join the strikers. This was a rather enormous straw, and the camel's back was quick to give way. There were no new marks being printed to keep up with the prices, and the general strikes across the country kicked into a high gear. The demands from the KPD were simple. Kuno was to resign, and the government to be replaced with the workers. On the 10th, there was a general meeting in Berlin between the union leadership, the SPD, and the KPD. The union bosses were fearful of the situation getting out of control, which was a classic fear the SPD reps immediately preyed upon. The bosses made the decision to refuse backing of any general strike, despite that having already started without their approval. The KPD simply left the meeting and went directly to the workers. Within days, strikes were in full swing across the nation. On the 12th of August, Kuno bowed to reality and resigned. He was replaced by a man named Gustav Stressman. Stressman might not have seemed like a great change. He was a centrist like Kuno, and he prioritized the interests of the business class like his predecessor. But it turns out that he was going to wind up being probably the most notable statesman of the Weimar era, barring Hitler, who ended that era. So his is a name worth remembering. He formed a new coalition, this time including the SPD in his cabinet. Yes, the SPD joined in with the centrists, who had betrayed them time and time again, and left the communists once again being left out in the cold. With Kuno gone and a new government with some measure of worker support in place, the general strike started to crumble. It wasn't helped by the fact that, to maintain strikes, unions have to save up funds and supplies to make sure workers and their families didn't starve. Well, thanks to the inflation, those savings didn't exist. That meant most workers were faced with starvation or going back to work. This was a dire blow to the workers' movement, as most had to return to the floor in order to stay alive. Not that the Stressman government accomplished anything to alleviate the situation in its first month either, as the inflation continued unabated until basic goods cost trillions of marks. Food riots started to break out, and employers began initiating mass layoffs. The massive strike, while a failure beyond forcing Kuno's resignation, did finally rouse the communist leadership in both Germany and Russia that there was a viable window for revolutionary action to be taken. 
The hundreds, while banned openly by the German government, were still very much an active force, and were presumed to measure their strength in the tens of thousands. In central Germany and Saxony, they were strong enough to still be able to march openly in the streets in defiance of the ban. And while they were not officially part of the KBD, they seemed ready to accept their leadership in a future revolution. By September, the abyss the country had fallen into only deepened. Unemployment started getting just as out of control as the inflation, and even the left sections of the SPD were starting to call for joint action with the communists. By September 21st, Steinus openly declared resistance to be a lost cause, with himself and his fellow industrialists leaning on Stressman to wind down the national resistance. On the 26th, Stressman duly followed through on that request and suspended further resistance to the French. The industrialists presented the same economic concessions they presented to Kuno back in June as the price of their cooperation in stabilizing the mark. Stressman managed to secure from the Reichstag an enabling act, which gave him emergency powers over the nation's economy. Most everyone saw this for what it was, basically a way for Stressman to dictate the removal of workers' rights and protections without having to wrangle a bill through the Reichstag. That body simply handed Stressman a political blank check and left him to fill it out. Events were proceeding quickly on the far right spectrum of the country as well. Down in Bavaria, the abject misery turned out to be the perfect environment for demagoguery. And now we finally get to meet the antagonist of our story for the first time. At this point, Adolf Hitler was not a terribly important national figure, and has, up to now, been relegated mostly to the sidelines in his Bavarian stomping grounds. But don't worry, we'll be getting some episodes on his early years for both him and the Nazi party, separately from the rest of Germany. Because while he is the key figure to why World War II eventually breaks out, he really only pops into the national spotlight a handful of times before the Depression. Not to say that he wasn't a known quantity, it's just that he wasn't a truly influential one until later. Part of the reason for this is because at this time, the Nazi party was just a small fish in a small pond in Bavaria. They had no national presence and had to cohabitate with a spectrum of far-right parties close to them in ideology. Hitler himself was seen as an exceptionally talented public speaker, but he did not command the loyalties of the far-right as a whole. The crisis of 1923 helped him raise his profile, as he had become one of the most prominent right-wing figures to denounce the Weimar Republic in general, and the Kuno government in particular. By the time the Stressman government had come to power, Hitler had joined in with Ludendorff and other fascist leaders to form a coalition called the German Combat League. This bloc came together after a massive rally in Nuremberg at the start of September, seeing a force of 100,000 paramilitary members march through the city streets in a show of force. Though despite the numbers and the call for unity among them, there still wasn't enough cohesion to make any clear moves as a unit although Hitler certainly made every move to bind the desperate groups under his political control. Upon the declaration of the 26th of September that passive resistance was to end, the Bavarian government appointed Gustav Ritter von Kahr to the title of General State Commissar. Kahr had already established himself as the kingpin of Bavarian politics, and this appointment confirmed openly that he was to be considered the region's autonomous ruler. But instead of stabilizing the situation, it just fueled plots to seize power in Bavaria, and from there, the rest of the Reich. When Stressman passed his enabling act to gain emergency powers, 
Carr ignored orders coming from Berlin. The local army commander, one General Otto von Lasso, also broke off from his chain of command and joined with Carr. Colonel Hans von Seisser, the head of police in Bavaria, completed the acting triumvirate. The appearance of the hundreds elsewhere in Germany and the rumblings of a communist uprising were sending all the paramilitaries into a frenzy, and Hitler's subordinates were warning that if the order to march wasn't given soon, then the men would do it on their own. Lasso called up Hermann Erhardt, a veteran of the Kapusch and one of the guys behind the wave of political assassinations I talked about last week, and put him in charge of a group of free corps and deployed them north, to the border between Bavaria and Saxony. Their purpose was to march on the KPD areas, and then Berlin. Stressmen and Sikht, though, were not terribly concerned with what was happening down south. To them, as per usual, it was the massing communists in the center in Saxony that was the real issue. And the KPD was genuinely leaning on making a major uprising. Their problem was that the leadership was again scared that they were moving too soon. But the rank and file were serious enough, and the hundreds began making preparations to seize their home regions while simultaneously disarming the Reichswehr, police forces, and Free Corps units in their localities. The plan was pretty simple. The Central and Saxon hundreds would seize their areas, keep just enough to hold the Bavarians at bay, and then send everything they could to take Berlin. The hundreds in the Ruhr would have a tougher bridge to cross, what with the French army being on top of them. Their part was simply to form up, actually march out of the Ruhr, and seize as much of northern Germany as they could. On October 12th, the KPD for the first time entered into the state government of Saxony, joining the local SPD government, which had been favorable to them recently at that point. The KPD declared plans for a new general strike and called for railway workers to block any troop movements. The army responded by moving to enforce the ban on the hundreds in Saxony on the 13th and started moving troops into the region on the 21st. The KPD called upon their allies in the local SPD to join with them in resisting the marching troopers. And can you guess what happened? Can you? Yeah, that's right. The local SPD decided they would hear out the troopers and not provoke a fight. Even though the Reichswehr really didn't distinguish between KPD and SPD all that much. The communist leadership lost their nerve as they kind of saw what was going to happen, and in the moment where the proletariat of the nation was at their most desperate and ready to revolt, they called off the planned national strike, which also meant the revolution to follow was cancelled as well. The army moved into Saxony and appointed leadership from the right wing of the SPD. A belated attempt by the left wing of that party to launch a strike anyway, and they did nothing. However, some guys decided that they were going to make a stab at revolution anyway. On October 24th, a few hundred armed communists attempted an uprising in Hamburg. They were crushed pretty much immediately. This was a disaster, and somewhat of an ironic one too. And desperately trying to avoid the embarrassment of March 1921, the KPD had suffered a reverse to match it and then some. The base of support had been there, and upon the first thing going wrong, namely the army intervening too early for the KPD's liking, the whole thing fell apart. The KPD was discredited badly again as a revolutionary force by squandering a golden opportunity to stand up for the proletariat when they were at their most impoverished. The next time such a crisis would come about, there would be a new political force in the country ready to offer itself as an alternative. Speaking of which, next week we'll be picking the crisis back up with the far right down in Bavaria, 
If you think the specter of communist uprising sounds like catnip to some far-right crazies, you'd be right. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.